Just a note about all caps. We live in the post-internet generation when all caps is rude. And so, I don't know if you notice it, but when I put scripture up on my blog, or I should say our blog, I always change it away from all caps so that you don't think I'm yelling at you when I quote scripture. But you saw that almost the entire chapter this morning in the Bible reading was all caps. And there are a couple things you need to know when we read scripture. We, we, we use the New American Standard Bible. And in that Bible, there are two things that are helpful. Number one, all caps means that as best they can tell, this is a quotation in the New Testament of the Old Testament. So anytime you see all caps in scripture, that indicates that the New Testament author is quoting from the Old Testament. Now being the product of the internet age, that means that you can take any of the text that appears in all caps, put it within quote marks in Google, and immediately find a quotation from the Old Testament. But that's wrong. Most of the time, you can't find a quote from the Old Testament. And the reason is, in Scripture, when Scripture quotes Scripture, it has a completely different standard of quoting than we have. With us, what matters is that you get the words, the punctuation marks, even down to an ellipsis, which is three dots in a row. Right. All right? When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's not a violation of truthfulness for it to take the Old Testament and to massage it in such a way that the point the New Testament author is making from the Old Testament springs out of the text in a way it doesn't in the Old Testament. All right? And so if you think that the Bible has to live by your standards of what you understand truthfulness to be, you're wrong. It has a truthfulness that's much greater. All right? And so this is the reason why when we find in the New Testament that it quotes the Old Testament in a way that changes the words of the Old Testament, we go, oh, no, that's a mistake in Scripture. They didn't get it right. Yeah, they did get it right because when you quote something, if you watch how you do it in normal conversation, you will often quote something in such a way that you'll yank out the thing that you particularly want to emphasize, and you'll use the quote to illustrate what you want to emphasize, but you won't do it, quote, unquote, ellipses, comma, you know, single quote, double quote, double quote. I was reading recently somewhere. Let me see if I can find this. This is priceless. you got to hear this. You're all waiting with bated breath, right? Okay, listen to this. It has to be pretty quick. It's in Isaiah, and I'll put you out of your misery soon. Maybe somebody else can find it. I never find anything in the Bible when I want it, because I, when I entered the ministry, very soon I started using computers to find things. And that was the end of me. So if I'm in a counseling session, you'll often find it. Oh, thank you. You'll often find that I go get my computer. And that's why Spurgeon, I think it was, would never use a concordance. Oh. All right, I'm going to have to give up, I think. 
Anyhow, in the book of Isaiah somewhere, in the book of Isaiah, there's a place that I was just coming across, and I circled it in blue, you know, and it has, like, period, double quotes, single quote, double quote, single quote, double quote. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? So, like, it's a quote within a quote within a quote within a quote within a quote. I think there's five. And the minute you see that, you realize that's not how the Bible was written. And you're right. There are no quote marks in Scripture. All right? So, upper caps, you know, it's not rude. It's not yelling at you. It's simply New Testament quoting the Old Testament. Don't think you can put it in Google. You can't because you won't find it. All right? Now, one other thing. In the New American Standard Bible, when you're reading, you run across italics, right? What are italics? Italics are are where the English translators add words that they think will help you to understand it. And what that means is, sort of, italics are words the Holy Spirit didn't inspire. Now, if you're a linguist, you know that I'm being a little unfair, all right? Because many times in English, you have to add words in order to have the sense of the original Hebrew or Greek, all right? But an awful lot of the time, when you look at the words that are in italics in English Bibles, and you think, could I get by without that? You will think, yes, thank you very much. I could have gotten by without that. And sometimes you'll think, as a matter of fact, it would have been helpful to me not to have that word in italics. Because those italicized words often take the edge off of the text. Or... They resolve the ambiguity of the text. And never should we resolve ambiguity in a text that the Holy Spirit inspired. Because if the Holy Spirit wants you in a vice grip with pressure coming from the spin, and the English translators take that pressure away with a word added in italics just to resolve the tension... You know, like Messian, you know, after I die, play it and resolve it into major. That's actually what he said. And so at his funeral, it didn't end in minor, it ended in major. And I, I can't remember which one it was. Which one was it? If God puts us under pressure in the inspiration of his word, and we try to resolve that pressure... In any way, we have become subscriptural, not suprascriptural, sub. And one of the ways we can resolve it is by paraphrasing it. You know, well, let's put it into sort of, sort of Facebook language. Well, Facebook language isn't made for God speaking to us, trust me. Well, then let's add some italicized words. Well, sometimes we do need to do that, but we shouldn't resolve tension that God intended, that God inspired. Sometimes we do it by paying preachers to scratch our ears, right? And so we have a man get up in the pulpit, and he preaches a very lofty and erudite a, 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 a 
a ministerial oblation. He, he's a pulpiteer. He's not a pastor. And when, we, when he gets done, we're all sitting there and we're going, oh man, what a glorious preacher we have. I know all of you think that all the time about me. Listen, I don't ever want you to come away from a sermon ever in this church, ever, where the conclusion you come to has anything to do with the man who's standing there. Because I'm not preaching you my word, I'm preaching you the word of God. And to the degree that you leave this place thinking something about me, I have utterly failed. I should be such a vessel that every single time I preach, the only thing you think of is the justice and the mercy of God. And so you, you can try to paraphrase with Facebook language. You can add italicized words that take away the ambiguity that the Holy Spirit inspired. You can hire a preacher who will scratch your ears. There are all kinds of ways that you can reduce Scripture to your servant rather than your master. And they're all sin. They're all perfectly normal, perfectly understandable, perfectly boring, and they're sinful. Now, we have come to a text this morning that's the perfect example of a place where we do everything we can to escape the Word of God. As a matter of fact, I said in the earlier service, and by the way, it used to be that Sunday was taken as a day of devoting ourselves to the fellowship of God's people and to worship and to deeds of mercy. And I'd encourage you, just take the whole morning for the church. I mean, that's radical in America. You can take the whole afternoon and evening for football, but don't you dare take the full morning for church. But I'd encourage you to come to the first service and the second because you always get two separate sermons. And it's really quite helpful. I'm telling you it is because I listen to the sermons every week, both of them. And I'm helped by them. <laughs> this is true, actually. All right. In the first service, I said that I don't know that there's any text in Scripture that is more perfectly suited to the church in America today than this one we're going to study. It's like totally on pitch. For us. And there are an infinite variety of ways that we try to escape it. And I was very encouraged as I prepared to preach this morning to read John Calvin 500 years ago and to read him saying that people in his day were precisely the same kind of weaselly as we are. That they had the same words they use to escape this text that we use. And so let's start by going back to chapter 9 so that you get into the flow. I think we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. I know Jake two weeks ago preached on some of what we're going to be studying. But many of you have not been here the last uh, months when we've been dealing with this. So I want to give you a feel for where you are in the middle because... Contrary to what your Bible says, there are no chapters and there are no verses in the original Greek and Hebrew. And so they would have read it through 
but we want to come and just take a little bite, a little nibble, kind of like hors d'oeuvres, you know? And I want you to get a feel for the full meal that the Apostle Paul is giving the Corinthians in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're picking it up in the middle, okay? So let's go to chapter 9, and let's start with verse 24. The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness." Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. Now you get a feel for the flow, right? Look at what's going on. The Apostle Paul is dealing with a church that is very much in a community like Bloomington. It's a church of Corinthians, not Ephesians, not uh, Philadelphians. It's Corinthians. And Corinth is a city that is absolutely filled with idolatry and therefore with fornication and, idol- and adultery. In other words, it's, 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 it's completely sexually licentious. And you say, well, what does licentious mean? And I say, you. And you say, what? And I say, We live in a city that is completely licentious. And anytime you hear a word that's dead, look it up. Because there's probably a reason it's died. All right? The word effeminate is dead today. Look it up. Corinth was filled with idolatry and therefore with sexual immorality, number one. And number two, Corinth was filled with intellectual sophistication. Everybody in Corinth thought that they were the apex of the thinking man, the thinking woman. 
they had knowledge that the world had never seen before. And so now when I tell you Corinth is Bloomington, you know why I'm saying that? Because our community is filled with idols of brains. Have you all seen them? There's brains all over town. Why are there brains? Because we, you and me, at least you, are a brain. We are just like the Corinthians. We're in a town that is so proud of its knowledge. And a town that's so proud of its knowledge that it knows it can give in to every sexual sin it wants to. Because really, mind over matter. You know? We all know that we're above the grubby things our bodies do. You know? And so they were free to give in to every kind of sexual sin that they wanted to. And because the church of Corinth was in the town of Corinth, the city of Corinth, the church of Corinth was so very proud of its knowledge and was shot through with sexual immorality. Almost every man in the church had gone through David Canfield's program for internet pornography. Now, some of you are new. You don't know. We actually have a program to discipline men so that they, and we're going to start one for women because now 30% of internet pornography is consumed by women. All right? And we have a program. And you should be sitting there thinking, how helpful. We aim to please. (laughs) And David, where are you? Would you stand up, please? David is an elder, and David has put this program together and has a number of men that help him with it. And so if you're new here and you struggle to not be a fornicator like the Bloomingtonians you're around, go to David. David will help you. It will be confidential unless you get to the point where you give yourself whole hog to it, and then he'll talk to the elders about how to deal with you. But normally it'll be confidential, and David has helped. I'm, I'm going to guess 50 to 100 by this time, probably more. And so this was Corinth. And the Corinthians are just so full of themselves, just like me. You know, they live in Bloomington, for heaven's sakes, not Bedford. And they have knowledge. They're not like Owen County. And not even Indianapolis. And certainly not Purdue. I mean, listen, all I do is say what you think. Don't ever, ever think that I'm coming up with anything creative. I'm not. (laughs) And so, consequently, the church has no conscience. Because they're so smug. Sort of like your grandmother sitting in the middle of generations of children and grandchildren and just looking out at what she has done. And the Apostle Paul sees that in this church they have one man that's having sex with his father's wife and the church is proud because, of course, they have knowledge and they know that things like this don't don't really matter because what matters is knowledge, you know. And he sees that people are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper 
And he sees that they're fighting constantly. And he sees that they despise God's word because they think that their wisdom is such that it's superior to the word of God. And, 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 and they've even gotten above that petty thing known as the resurrection. You know, they, they even have, have, have trampled upon the resurrection of the dead in Christ and of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's almost nothing that the Corinthians haven't done. And how could they do this and still claim to be Christians? Well, the reason is that to be a Christian is to have superior knowledge. Do you understand? Bloomingtonians, do you understand? That's what a Christian is. We have a superior knowledge that allows us to not take seriously the sort of blood and guts and dirty life of the flesh and the body and, and to not be real worried about the commands of God and the holiness of God because we know that we live, what? By grace. And it, the whole point of being a Christian is that you don't have to fear God anymore, right? And the Apostle Paul looks at this cauldron of wickedness, which is the Corinthian church, and he's like, you know, I was sitting at a bank recently trying to explain that I was now the executor of the estate, the previous executor had died very suddenly, and that they needed to give me access to the account so I could fix up the house to sell it, right? And I'm sitting there in the bank with a very sweet lady, and she has a man on the phone. You know, kind of like going into a car dealership, you know. You got the manager you never get to talk to, and then you got the salesman, right? And I'm sitting there with this lady, and she keeps explaining to me that there's already an executor. And I keep saying, he's dead. <laughs> you know? The pirate is dead. <laughs> it bought the farm, you know. And she says she understands and then goes to the man and says that the previous executor is dead. And he says, well, we already have an executor, so no, we, there's no way for him to, to have access to the account because there's already. So I take the piece of paper that the state has given me, and, and it has a stamp, and it's an original, you know, because I bought a whole bunch of originals down at the, at the court. And I hand it to him and say, see, it says I'm the executor. And the date is since the date of the other executor. So this displaces the former. And she gets on the phone, and she says, he says that the other executor, uh, that he's replaced him. Well, I'm sorry, we already have an executor. And so what do you do? Well, you're, you're looking at her, and she's a very nice lady. So you don't want to hurt her feelings. You don't want to tell her that she's defective, or that, least of all, that the man that's her boss on the phone that you can't see and you can't punch, you know, that he's defective. You know, so what I did, and this is like the equivalent of what the Apostle Paul is doing at this point in the letter of Corinth, is I, I took my hands, made them into fists, and I just started punching my head. <laughs> and I just kept saying, he's dead! He's dead! He's dead! You know, and the good thing about that, I hadn't thought about it. It was just a reaction. But the good thing is it, it actually made her pity me. Because <laughs> I was sitting there punching my head. You know? He's dead! <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, they're okay, I think. 
<laughs> He's dead. <laughs> I want you to know I walked out of there with access to the account. <laughs> and so the Apostle Paul is dealing with the Corinthians and he just keeps trying to get them to wake up. He keeps trying to get them to see that God is holy and that his holiness has not been removed by his grace. That actually the blood of Jesus Christ is a precious thing that's needed because of who you are and who I am. But they keep taking it for granted. They don't wake up. They're asleep. They're utterly asleep. Their consciences have been so uh, desensitized, and my image for this is always an iron on a forearm. If you can imagine taking the iron at its hottest setting, maybe for linen, and you press it on a forearm, and what happens is that the skin and the hair and everything just becomes a congealed mass of liquid. And after a long time, it heals and it doesn't ooze anymore. But it never has restored to it the feeling that God intended that to have. Because the conscience has been seared. And these Corinthians have no ability of feeling the terror of God. They have no sense of the holiness of God. Everything religious serves the purposes of their dead, seared consciences. And so they go through all the ceremonies and all the rituals and all the rites and all the sacraments and all the preaching and all the singing and everything, and it's blah, 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 absolutely hates it. And here Paul is, and he listens to God. And he loves the blah, 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 blah people. And he's trying to wake them You're awake. And it gives me joy, my beloved. Now listen. Feel it as we go through it. The Apostle Paul says, Don't you know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And what Calvin says is the people running the race in the Corinthian church were back at the start line congratulating themselves on having arrived at the race. And did you see anybody in the Olympics that way? You know, there were some of them that were like... There were some of them that were actually lapped in a swimming pool, <laughs> which is like really bad. 
you know, if you're lapped in the short distance of a swimming pool, you're not even in the same world as the other people in front of you. But the Corinthians were worse than that. At least the guy being lapped was doing his best, but the Corinthians weren't doing anything. They were at the start line congratulating themselves on having arrived at the race. And he says to them, don't you know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Wake up! It's a race! Many are called, few are chosen. Broad is the way that leads to death. Narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. Wake up! Everyone who competes in the game exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. If we're going to watch the Olympics, hey, here's an idea. If you're going to study biology, if you're going to read sociology, if you're going to learn the nature of anatomy... Whatever you're going to study, it all points to God. If you're going to watch the Olympics, learn something. Do you want the prize? Probably well more than half of us sitting here looked at the gold medals and heard the star-spangled banner, and got chills at some point. And did it ever occur to you that that's chicken litter compared to what's going on here this morning? Who will win the prize here? Who? Is it going to be you? Do you even desire to win the prize? Or is your goal in life to just be you know, the guy that, 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 that just never can quite be anything but a victim. You think any guy made it in the NFL who specializes in being a victim? Yeah, Andrew Luck behind his offensive line. <laughs> At least this week. Listen. Don't cop the postmodern weak posture. Don't tell me that you're colorblind. I really don't give a rip. Don't tell me that you have a gammy leg. Don't tell me that your mama didn't love you. Don't tell me that you have a different theology. Don't tell me that you have found that you just simply can't have victory over that sin. Don't tell me how good-looking the women look to you in your browser. Don't tell me how many years you haven't loved your wife. I don't want to hear about it. No temptation has taken you, but what is common to man. And God has made a way for you to escape it. Okay? So don't be a victim here. The Apostle Paul is not speaking to victims, is he? He's speaking to people who know they're in a race, and when he says one wins, he knows that they want to win. And the victim never wants to win except at losing. And that's the nature of postmodernism. The only dignity is the loser. And that's the world you live in. So you have trouble even understanding the Apostle Paul that, 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 that the man that wins the race would be privileged. <laughs> Every time I hear the word privileged or the verb, which supposedly, it's a verb, 
all right? Every time I hear that, I realize that I'm dealing with a world that hates God's hierarchy, hates his distinctions, hates the fact that black and white aren't the same color. They're not shades of gray. Are you with me? And so the word privilege is a pejorative. It's the way that you show your intellectual sophistication that you know nobody should ever be privileged, but the whole goal in life is to bring everybody to the same pathetically, disgustingly, uninteresting shade of gray. And the Apostle Paul is privileging the one who wins. <laughs> Listen. Run in such a way as to win. And if that means you leave me behind, by God, leave me behind. If that means you leave your mother behind, leave her behind. If that means you leave your denominational affiliation behind, leave it behind. If that means you have to leave your discipline and leave your degree program for another one that doesn't traffic in ideology and propaganda, leave it. Run in such a way as to win. So the Apostle Paul is is saying this to the Corinthians, and at this point he stops and he thinks, okay, they're looking at him and they're thinking, oh yeah, Paul, you know, there you are, up on your high horse, browbeating us, you know, chill out, dude, get a sense of proportion. And so he says, okay, fine, you think it's good for you, but not good for me. Listen to this, he says, therefore I, I, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, and maybe this is my justification for the bank scene, right? But I discipline my body and make it my slave. And what he's referring to is actually punching himself, giving himself a black eye. That's actually what what it's saying there. I discipline myself. I punch myself, give myself a black eye, all right? I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be a little bit less than I was meant to be. But that's not what it says. But that's what all evangelicalism says. No, he says, lest I be disqualified. In other words, hey people, you think everything's fine with you, but you know what? I'm beating myself black and blue and disciplining myself so that I am not disqualified. Now, where are you? I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm your pastor. Where are you? Why should I have to be disciplined? Why should I be giving myself a black eye and all of you are sleek and fat? What's up? Then he goes on and he says, For I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So where did that come from? Well, what he's saying is our fathers are the Jews. And he says, okay, listen, this is what I do. This is what your fathers in the faith did. You remember how the Israelites were in Egypt in slavery And God made them his people and rescued them. You remember that, right? You remember that God told them to take a spotless lamb 
and kill it and take the blood and mark their homes. You remember because they marked their homes that their oldest sons were not killed by the death angel sent from God. You remember that, right? And they're all going, yeah, 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 yeah. And he says, okay, for I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So here the Corinthians are. They have a different religion than the old religion of the Old Testament. Their God's soft. Their God doesn't mind sin. So the Apostle Paul says, look, I discipline. I, I make myself black. And, okay, okay, I get it. I get it. I'm just a little bit too severe, just a little too intense. I'm, I'm like just a little bit rigid. So, okay, fine. You claim the Old Testament as your example of people that God called to himself and then it was happiness and it was peace and then it was heaven. Okay, listen, here's what actually went on in the Old Testament. They were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now this cloud, you remember, was the cloud that God sent to lead them through the wilderness. If the cloud stopped, they stopped. If the cloud started, they started. And think of how wonderful it was to have a cloud in the wilderness. And never until this summer have I understood this. A cloud! I love it! A cloud! It doesn't even need to give me rain. Just a cloud, please. Your fathers were all under the cloud, right? And all passed through this. Well, you know what that is. All of a sudden, the Egyptians decide, no, we're not going to let them go. They get on their chariots. They have their swords. They have everything that can kill men. And they come after the Israelites, and God parts the Red Sea. And they go down into the sea, and God, through the sea, rescues them. You you remember, your fathers were under the cloud, and they were in the sea. And then he says, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And you go, baptized? Baptized? He's getting his testaments mixed up. You know, that's what we do, but they didn't do that. But the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that was baptism. Huh. Well, I thought the God of the Old Testament was like, you know, like, different. I mean, it almost sounds like a sacrament. And then he goes on and he says, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And <laughs> you're going... Wait, 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 wait. This is, he's like getting everything mixed up. Because in the New Testament, the sacraments are the Lord's Supper and Baptism. But he's talking about baptism in the Old Testament. He's talking about the Lord's Supper in the Old Testament. He's talking about eating and drinking. Oh, okay, I get it. In the Old Testament, there were certain physical things that showed how good God was to them. And everything in the Old Testament was physical. Circumcision was physical. The the manna was physical. The rock that gave out good water was physical. You know, God physically saved them through the sea. God physically led them through the cloud. It's all physical. 
But in the New Testament, finally, they will worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is what you've all been told. You know why you've been told that? You've been told that so that you don't have to fear God. (laughs) But it's not quite like that. You've been told that so that the pastor doesn't command you to fear God. And the pastor doesn't want to command you to fear God because if he commands you to fear God, he's going to lose his job, he's going to get paid less, his church is going to be smaller... It's just simply not good marketing. Okay, Tom? It's not good marketing. Hi. (laughs) Now listen. What the Bible's telling us here is that in the Old Testament, there were sacraments. There were physical things that pointed to spiritual realities. It's telling us that the sea was a sacrament. It's telling us that the manna was a sacrament. It's telling us that the rock was a sacrament that gave out water. It's telling us these things were sacraments and that the people of God were the church. The Apostle Paul is forcing the Old Testament and New Testament together in such a way that nobody has room to weasel out of it saying that we live in a new dispensation where God is not a God of wrath and we don't need to fear him and knowledge is sufficient, especially when combined with baptism and the Lord's Supper. In other words, the Corinthians were just like us. They trusted in church membership and Tim Bailey as their pastor and in, in, in being baptized and having the Lord's Supper and having sermons that are erudite. So helpful, but not helpful at all. Because, after all, The God of America, of the United States, and of evangelicalism, of Bible-believing churches today, is not a God that scares anyone. Because he's a God of grace. And the Old Testament God is a God of judgment. The Old Testament God is a God of wrath. And thank God we're done with him. Jesus came to get rid of the Old Testament God. So that we could live in grace And eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and go to heaven. And the Apostle Paul sees, he sees how sneaky we are. And so he's like a titanium bullet. And he fires in and he blows it to smithereens. Because he will do anything to awaken the conscience of the people of God. And isn't that beautiful? I mean, honestly, if I could divide, I would divide at this point, and I'd say, on the right hand, I want those who don't want their consciences awakened. And on the left side, I want all those who do want their consciences awakened. And see, the Apostle Paul says, don't you try to get squirrely on God. 
They had sacraments, they had rituals, they had ceremonies, they had baptism, they had the Lord's Supper. And you say, well, now, now wait a second. Baptism, I say, listen to him, listen to him. He knows they know their history. And so what he's saying is, people, they had Christ. They had Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Because they had the blood of Jesus on their lentils, on their doorposts. And the death angel didn't kill their sons. And then they went through the Red Sea and they were baptized into Jesus Christ. And then they were under the cloud and they were under Jesus Christ. And then they had the manna and then they had the rock. And the rock was Christ! Don't try to make an opposition between God and his son, Jesus Christ. They've never been in opposition. Everyone who was saved in the Old Testament was saved through Jesus Christ. Through the eyes of faith in Jesus Christ. There's never been a path to salvation other than Jesus Christ. And now, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? And you say, yeah. I've been baptized. I come to the Lord's table. I say, Jesus appointed those sacraments today. Your obedience is one test of faith. But if you hold up baptism in the Lord's Supper as a means of escaping the holiness of God, as a means of coming up with some double talk whereby you can escape the Apostle Paul saying, lest I myself am disqualified. Do you understand? I'll give you a plug nickel for your sacraments. Because those sacraments are now destructive of you. Because they are the means by which you silence your conscience. And the one thing we know is that a Christian has a conscience which is alive. It's alive. A Christian grieves over his sin. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance. We don't use Rome and all her hoochie-joochie as a way of escaping our consciences. We don't think that if we get up and go down and go around and back and forth and light the candles and hire the religious order to say masses for our dead people and then go to purgatory and work and work and work and work and work that finally we can be good enough to be saved. That is always the way of the world. And that is not Christian faith. Christian faith is, oh, I'm undone. I'm undone! There's no hope for me! Where am I going to go?
So the Apostle Paul shows the sons of Israel all their sacraments, the markings of God, the physical, rea- the physical symbol that points to a spiritual reality. He points to God's provision for them. He calls to mind the blood of the, the perfect lamb. And then he says this. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, come on. Isn't that helpful? Isn't that helpful? Isn't that helpful? You know, if that's not helpful, then what you're saying is that the Holy Spirit is a liar because the Holy Spirit says all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, and profitable means helpful. And so that's part of Scripture, and it's just been read to you, and so your heart should be going, oh, that was helpful. But you've been taught that fear is unhelpful. And it is true that for some of you, fear is unhelpful. This is not the fear of someone who's picking off the petals from a daisy saying, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. This is not the bastard child cringing under the wrath of God with no hope. The fear we're talking about here is what's called filial fear. The fear of the son who loves his heavenly father and who fears his heavenly father both at the same time and doesn't think he has to resolve it to the detriment of one or the other. This fear is completely integrated. It's the fear of love. It's the love of fear. It's perfect love and perfect fear embracing. And therefore, it's not cringing. When have you ever gone to the father that loves you with sin against him and against his wife and cringed, you know, Uriah Heapish, down on the floor, groveling? No, you go to him and say, Dad, I did it again. And your father says, I know how wicked you are, and I love you. You really think that God doesn't know how wicked you are when it required the blood of his only begotten and beloved son? to purchase your redemption. Do you think you're surprising God? It's helpful for you to be reminded that they were laid low in the wilderness. And what is it helpful to? Well, it's helpful for you to escape the sins that he begins to name, right? The Apostle Paul's like a bloodhound. He's back at you again. And and it's amazing. The sins that he's back at you about are exactly the sins you need him to be back at you about. And so then he says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for them so that they would not crave evil things. But is that what it says? No. It doesn't tell us the Old Testament is helpful to the Old Testament people. It says, Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And so listen, if you crave evil things, if you desire the flesh pots of Kilroy's, be honest. If you sometimes wish you could take off the Christian hat and put on the pagan hat, be honest. 
okay? If you sometimes wish that you had Donald Trump's brash, it's just unbelievable egotism, you know, and you could just tell people they're done, but you have to sit there and wheedle and cajole or whatever. These things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. All of it's idolatry. With idolatry always comes not simply the worship of the image, but also the eating in celebration, the feast of the image, and also the sex of the image. And so the Israelites, having made a golden image to mediate the tension between them and God, they weren't wanting to get rid of Jehovah with that golden calf, but that golden calf was a helpful thing. All right? So they worship the golden calf, and then, of course, they feast the golden calf. They fade him. And then, of course, they give themselves to sexual immorality. They always go together. All right? So don't do it. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, does that have everybody here? Those of you that aren't fornicators, I guarantee you, you are grumblers. And some of you have perfected them both. Okay? And he's just listed them. They're the same sins as the Old Testament church. And he says, now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In other words, the whole reason you have these recorded in Scripture is so that you will take warning and not think that you can escape the judgment of God the way the Israelites didn't. Do you understand this? There is absolutely no way to understand this text other than that way. The Old Testament blood of the wrath of God is a warning to you, Christian, to you. And it is intended to keep you from giving yourself into sin and becoming without conscience as you give yourself into sin. Okay? And in case we miss the point, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. I mean, who thinks they stand more than those with superior knowledge in the sacraments? I mean, isn't that the perfect definition of the Lutheran and Reformed and Presbyterian churches? We have superior knowledge, and we have the sacraments. Therefore, let the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Reformed who think they stand, beware, lest they fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Now, listen. <laughs> Do you remember how I said this should be helpful? And all of you were kind of passive-aggressive, resistant. None of you were nodding your heads. You were all kind of uptight. Now, Let me ask you about this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Isn't that helpful? Oh, come on. Would you help me at the difficult parts? Do you realize the influence that you have on the preaching of the word by anybody standing here? Do you realize 
that just a couple of faces, a couple of amens, cause us to not be tempted to scratch your ears. It doesn't take much from you to strengthen the preacher. Okay? No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Now listen, is this a God that we can worship? Is this a book that we can trust? You think about the sins that were just mentioned. In that context, the Apostle Paul says to the people that he's the shepherd of, no temptation has overtaken us, but which is common to man. And so you think about the sins that you find yourself tempted by. And you think they're so exotic because no women's prayer group has ever had anybody asking for prayer for that one. And guess what? That sin is common to man. Incest. Child abuse beating children. Guess what? It's common. Common to man. When I first had a child, all of a sudden I had something that I cared more about than anything else I'd ever cared about in my life. And I looked at myself and I realized that I could commit incest against my children. And I realized that I could beat my children. And you say, no. And I say, yes. And I had grown up in a home where my father did not create children who had no conscience. And so I was awakened to my conscience. And I realized that the most precious things in life, sexual intimacy, for instance, marriage, could be unbelievably destroyed by my heart. But I had the word of Scripture that no temptation had taken me, but which was common to man. And that gave me the faith to set in place protections, to take my temptations seriously, and to put protections and so, if you're tempted to have homosexual sex with a man or a woman, understand this, who gives a rip? You think that privileges you to be an extra special victim? It is common. It's as old as the hills and three times as dusty. You're tempted by incest? Who gives a rip? You're tempted by theft. You want to murder. Really? You mean like Cain? And that was like the children of Adam? That's pretty early in the story. Listen. No temptation, no matter how perverse... No matter how wicked, none is taken you but which is common to man. And, actually, I'm, I'm blowing it. 
That's not what the text says. Did any of you catch it? Anybody here catch it? You know what I just said? I just said, has taken you. But actually, it's overtaken you. (laughs) Isn't that even more encouraging? When you're overtaken, you're not so victorious, are you? Right? No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And if you really are a Christian and you have the sacraments and you're in a Missouri Synod Lutheran church, then you won't be tempted beyond what you're able. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say anything about the sacraments. It doesn't say anything about the preaching. It doesn't say anything about the confessions, the orthodoxy. It doesn't say anything about the candles you've lit at the cathedral. It doesn't say how many times you go to Mass. What it says is, and God is faithful. I'm not pointing to you. I'm not pointing to me. God is faithful. God is faithful. Whatever that sin is, it's common to man, and God is faithful. All right? God is faithful. Who, he, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Don't listen to the, the voices, the sirens. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. This is the word of God. And it doesn't lie. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. If the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure. So when your flesh says, I can't take it, I can't take it, I can't take it, I can't take it. It's Satan. You can endure because God is faithful. Ah! Help me. I mean, is this is this like better than is this like better than key lime pie when they do it right? <gasps> now listen. The apostle Paul has just gotten done whooping you. Do you, do you understand this? He's taken you back to the woodshed, and he's laid a few on you, and it hurts. Is everybody there? Okay, now listen to me. The sweetest thing about the whole text is this. Listen. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Do you remember when you got spanked by a good father? And he was good enough to never fail to make good on his threats, right? Any of you had a dad like that? You did. Yeah, yeah, you had dad like that. He always made good on his threats, right? And so then, as soon as you do what he told you you would be spanked if you did one more time, he then takes you and he spanks you, right? And when the spanking is over, he says, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Okay, now, what's for lunch? I mean, you realize that this short declaration or command is very, very, very brief and to the point and sort of chilled out and mellow. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. The sum of all of this is flee idolatry, but not therefore flee idolatry, but therefore my beloved flee idolatry. In other words, the Apostle Paul loved the Corinthians. He was gaga 
for them. He was gaga for them. He was not establishing his superiority to them by his erudite presentation. He just loved them. And so he was useful. And so he preached to them and threatened them and warned them and showed them a picture of the wrath of God. And, and, and he was good enough to ferret out all the Weasley places they were trying to escape everything that the scriptures were written down to tell them. And when he gets done, it's really painful. And he says, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. All idolatry, flee it. My beloved. Now listen, some of you are new and you wonder, why on earth do I kiss the men of this church? Listen, the only way to be a true church is to love one another. There is no true church that is not permeated through with filial love, brotherly and sisterly love. Because the only way you can have true repentance is if you are in the presence of men and women. They're your brothers, and they love you through repentance. The only way you can be disciplined by the preaching of the word is if you love the preacher and you let him get away with an unbelievable amount of things, including scaring babies. The only way you can deal with my breath the only way that you can allow your brothers and sisters in Christ to be brothers and sisters in Christ to you who admonish and correct and rebuke with great patience. The only way this can happen is if we are one to another, beloved, 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 beloved. And I have this stupid habit of thinking that there should be some connection between what we say and what we do. And that if the Apostle Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss, he probably means greet one another with a holy kiss. And that if we get in the habit as men of de-eroticizing physical touch, <laughs> where everything isn't dirty the way the world has it, the world leers at everything. Here's an idea. Let's have KISS restored to priority of position so that when a man and a woman on the screen kiss, we think, oh yeah, that's like the church. have much of it, but it's still pointing. I see the finger. And then at church, when we get together, we greet one another with a holy kiss. We call each other brother, and we are to one another beloved. Okay? Everybody tends to pass over that word in this whole section as if it's just sort of extraneous. <laughs> it's not extraneous at all. It's the honey that gets the vinegar to go down. Okay? So please, don't be scandalized by the Apostle Paul and by Scripture. And please don't be scandalized if you are in a church where people bear some pathetic resemblance to it. Okay? Father, we pray that you will wake us up and strengthen the things that remain. We pray, Father, that you will remove the 
brittle and scarred tissue from our hearts and make them living. May they not be hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. We love him, Father. We hear him across the ages call us beloved. We can't wait to meet him. But Father, we know the Holy Spirit is the one that inspired this precious word, beloved. And we pray that it will prove true to us that every single one of us in this place today runs as those who win. We pray this in Jesus' name.